But the passage this morning comes from Luke 24, verse 36 through 53. Let me ask you if you're able, if you'd please stand. This is the culmination now of 17 months working through the Gospel of Luke, the last verses of this Gospel. Would you follow along as I read? Luke 24, 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. And on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them. And was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Would you please be seated? Would you once more join me in prayer? Father in heaven, I thank you for this, your word. I thank you for the revelation you've given through this gospel writer, Luke. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask this morning as we look together at your word that your spirit would be here at work among this people to convict our hearts, not only of the righteousness of Christ, but of our desperate need for him. And would you, in convicting our hearts, would you move us to faithful repentance? In the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would see salvation has been purchased by him, redemption for us, and that we would rejoice in this glorious truth. It's in your name we pray all of these things. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, I was getting home from work like I always do, and I walked into the house through our side door, and I went into the kitchen, and I looked across the living room, and I said hi to my daughter, Naomi. I said, hi, Naomi, I'm home. And she said, hi. And I said, how was your day, Naomi? And she said, good. And I thought immediately something was up. Her words were not matching the tone of her voice, and so I moved into the room a little bit further so I could get a good look at her, and I saw her sitting there in the living room, and something was odd. She was sitting in the chair and her fists were clenched. Her eyebrow was furrowed like she was very angry. And she looked as if she was ready to jump out of her chair 
and fight with the next person who walked through the door. So at first I was alarmed, and I moved even closer to her, but then I noticed that she had a book sitting on her lap. And so I said, are you reading a book, Naomi? And she said, yes. And I said, is there something intense happening at the book, in the book at this moment? And then she proceeded to tell me everything that was happening with the main character and how he found himself in this very precarious situation, and it was just terribly terrifying to her. It was funny because I ended the conversation by saying, haven't you read this book like three times already? <laughs> Didn't make sense to me. And she said, yes, Dad, I've read it three times. Still feels real, though. It's very interesting to me how the human heart and mind moves to and fro depending on the circumstances we find ourselves in. And you don't need to look much further than watching a late night television show and not being able to sleep through the night because your mind is consumed with whatever you were just watching, even if it's a fictional tale or a storybook. That our hearts seem to be moved by the things that enter into our minds, the events that transpire, the things that we read and hear, we're often moved to and fro with the rising or the falling of the tide. And doesn't it often seem like the tide is more falling than it is rising? That our hearts are more troubled than they are content or joyous or hopeful. That we have troubled hearts. Now listen, as we begin looking at this passage, I'm going to write this word at the top of the board. It is the word that Jesus used, uses in this passage that our hearts are troubled. It's going to be the theme of the text this morning. It will help us make sense of Christ's words in this passage. But do you know that the Bible tells us there's a reason that our hearts are troubled? Now listen, I know that maybe many of you, some of you at least, don't often go to church or you're not familiar with the lingo that often happens in churches, but the Bible says that this is connected to sin. That is the fall and the rebellion of man, the separation from humanity from their God that causes our hearts to be troubled. That causes what Jesus says here, why are your hearts troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? But even if you're unfamiliar with that biblical-type lingo, you don't need to look very far to understand what this means because everyone experiences this in their hearts, don't they? We experience this in broken relationships. We experience this with family that we love but we can't seem to get along with. We experience this in careers that we thought were going to be fruitful and productive that were going to make us have some purpose in life, but they seem to be unrewarding. We experience this when we thought we would have clout in a certain field, but we have no clout. We experience this when we thought we would have friends in our neighborhood, but we have no friends in our neighborhood. We experience this when we thought that we would be healthy and happy, but we seem to move from one ailment to the next, trying to keep our heads above water. This it's the trouble that we experience in our own hearts. It is caused by sin and the byproducts that we experience day in and day out, okay? So even if you don't know the title to give it, even if you've never given it much thought, you understand what's being described this morning. And let me tell you something. The Bible, and more specifically the Gospel of Luke that we have been looking at this last year and a half is simply this. It's an explanation of the troubles of our hearts 
and then a remedy for that very same trouble. That's what it is. That's what the Bible's all about. Explains the trouble and then provides the solution. That's what we're talking about this morning as we look together at this passage. Now, you'll notice that Jesus brings up the subject in verse 38, doesn't he? As he's responding to his disciples, he says, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? And so he begins to speak towards the very issue that we mentioned this morning. Let me tell you something. You might be aware of this, but what we do in our human existence, in our lives, is that we try to remedy this ourselves, don't we? Okay? So we have trouble in our hearts, and what do we do? We try to fill it with love, or with lust, or with food, or with drink, or with things, or with career, or with shopping, or with relationships. All of the various things that we believe will fulfill us, and we find very quickly that they're empty, and so we often move to the next thing. This is, this is why you're, you might be sitting at home thinking, I, I feel restless, you know, I need to, I need to go shopping, Okay. Now, it sounds very silly, but shopping is one of the very easy remedies that we use, we think will bring a solution to our troubled hearts. We go shopping, and we come home, and we realize we're not, we're not much happier. We've spent all this money. The things that we have really don't impress us. They don't uh, give us any contentment in our hearts, and we are empty again, okay? So here's what Jesus will speak about this morning, and here's what we understand about this passage. Here is the solution, okay? A real Jesus who was promised beforehand, who died and was raised. I'm giving you the whole sermon outline. Whole sermon outline. For the purpose of the forgiveness of sins. Okay? Purpose of the forgiveness of sins. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's, let's begin with the real Jesus. If you notice the beginning of this passage, the beginning of this passage begins, and here is Jesus, after he says, why are your hearts troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? He begins to show his disciples that he is indeed really there, okay? Look at my hands. Listen to my voice. Do you have a piece of fish? Let's sit down and eat, okay? Do you ever wonder why from the very beginning of the gospel all the way through to this very last verse of the gospel of Luke, there seems to be a spectacular emphasis on the sensory descriptions, okay, of those who saw Jesus and those who felt Jesus and those who heard Jesus and those who looked in his eyes, okay? We, if we read the beginning of this gospel, we think before Jesus dies, we literally have thousands of people who are described as touching him, seeing him, hearing him, okay? They were healed by him. They felt his hands, they heard his teaching. They were fed by him at the Sea of Galilee. Uh, they witnessed with their eyes his miracles. They looked him in the eye. They experienced these sensory interactions with Jesus. And Luke doesn't stop at the death and resurrection of Christ. He, he moves forward and he begins to describe how after Christ's resurrection, he appeared to them. And not simply in the spirit. He appeared to them physically. And they felt his hands. And they saw the holes where the nails went through. And they heard his voice, and he ate with them. The, the eating the broiled fish always puzzles me. I think, Jesus just conquered the grave. Why does he need a piece of fish, okay? And I don't think he needed the piece of fish. I think it was for us. We could see that he actually was there in the flesh, present with them. Now, why? Why does Luke go to painstaking lengths 
to describe the sensory descriptions of the Lord Jesus? Well, it's very simple, that we would know that he indeed is a real, authentic Jesus, that he was there and present, that he lived and died, that these things actually happened in the course of history. Now, let me tell you, if anyone ever says to you, let me share the good news with you, but the good news doesn't include the real, authentic Jesus Christ, it's not good news, run from it, it's bad news, you could call it fake news, I guess, it's not real news. This is the real news that Jesus lived and he died. And after he raised again, he walked and talked and lived with his disciples. That they physically experienced his presence with them. This is, after all, why Luke writes this gospel. Now, remember 17 months ago, Luke chapter 1, verse 1, Luke is writing to Theophilus. And why does he say he writes this letter? He says to Theophilus, it seemed good to write an orderly account that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Certainty rooted in the real, authentic Jesus who lived and died. Let me offer you a challenge. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the challenge. What do you do with the real, authentic Jesus? What do you do with the fact that thousands of people were fed by him at the sea? What do you do with the fact that hundreds of people were healed by him? That at least six different people were willing to give their lives to record these events in the New Testament. That as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, more than 500 people witnessed him after his resurrection, and Paul says, if you don't believe me, go ask them. Many of them are still alive. What do you do with that? Let me just challenge you. You have to reconcile with that fact. There's no getting around this, okay? You can do what you want with the gospel, but when it comes to the reality that Jesus lived, that he died, and that he resurrected, you must reconcile with the fact that there are numerous historical accounts that these events actually happened, okay? The real, authentic Jesus. But not only was he real and authentic, he was also promised beforehand. This is what Jesus means in verse 44. Moving forward from touching him, feeling him, eating with him, hearing him, he says in verse 44 to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It's interesting, this morning I was talking with somebody after the sunrise service and they said, isn't it amazing how at the end of Luke, Jesus seems to be handing the disciples off. He's been walking with them and now he's entrusting them to the Word of God. He is showing them how the, the, the God-breathed Word now leads them in understanding the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a beautiful thing. Now listen, let me explain to you something. Jesus says that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now this isn't natural in the English language. We don't read this and immediately comprehend. So let me explain for a second. For the Jewish ear that was listening to this, they heard something that we didn't hear. And it's very simple. For them, the scriptures were the Old Testament scriptures, but they didn't call them the Old Testament scriptures. They simply summarized them as the law of Moses and the prophets. That was the summary of the Old Testament. So if you were to refer to the scriptures, you would say, yeah, I I read, I believe, the law of Moses and the prophets. Every once in a while, you would include the Psalms as well as a 
sort of third category. So essentially, as Jesus speaks here, here's what he's saying. He's saying, everything that has been written about me in all of the Word of God, okay, it is about me. And he opened their minds to understand all the Scriptures. Now, that's a big deal. I don't know if you've ever considered that. It's a, it's a huge deal because what we're saying is all of this, okay, all of the entire Bible has as its focus its centrality, it, it, its its ultimate pinnacle, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is all written about Him. And that is a beautiful thing for many reasons. We call that the Christocentric nature of Scripture. It is Christocentric. It is centered on Christ. And you see what that means, okay? That means that Jesus didn't, as He was speaking to His followers, He didn't say, guys, let me tell you, Psalm 22, all about me. And you might find something about me in the later pages of Isaiah, and there's that one passage in Daniel, those things are about me. That's not what he said, okay? He said all of the scriptures, he opened their mind to understand all the scriptures, all of them have been written concerning me. And, and that is all of the books of the Old Testament scripture that you can think of, right? That's the Esthers and, and the Ruth. Uh, uh, that is the Kings and Chronicles, okay? Uh, that is the odd ones like Song of Solomon, they all been written concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. That's significant because if we understand the end, then we can make sense of the parts, can't we? We can make pretty good sense of the parts. We have seen the fulfillment of the Scriptures. We have seen the things that the prophets wrote about. We have seen the things that the historical books were moving towards. We have seen the fulfillment of creation. We have seen the end of all these things, and now we look back on the parts, and we say, oh, that's why that's there. And that's how that fits together. This is what all of Scripture is about. And so the gospel news is the real authentic Jesus who was promised beforehand, who died and was raised, okay? And Jesus continues to enlighten their minds. In verse 46, he says to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Okay? Now listen. What was promised beforehand, there was a lot of things promised beforehand. We talk about the promises of the Old Testament and they are many. There's more than 500 concerning the Messiah but some of the most important are that he would die and that he would raise again. And Christ says, thus it was written, the scriptures predicted, prophesied that I would die and I would raise again. Okay? And let's say as we're talking about the truth of the gospel, this is another one of those essentials. Okay? Essential to believe that Christ died and that he raised again. If you don't believe it, it's not good news. It's something else. It's unhelpful. All right? Now, as we talk about these things, let me tell you something. These three things are what I would call the substance of the gospel. This is the bare bones, the minimum substance of the truth of the gospel, that a real authentic Jesus, who was promised beforehand, died and raised. And we'll talk about the purpose in a second. But that he died and raised. Now, let me say something, okay? It has become in vogue in today's world to say something like this. My pet peeve thing, fill in the blank, is at the heart of the gospel. Have you heard that before? My thing, I'll give you a few examples. My country, America, is at the heart of the gospel. I don't know if you've heard that before. I've heard that before, okay? 
I've heard this. Racial reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel. Or caring for the poor is at the heart of the gospel. Let me tell you something, okay? Before you turn the switch off, you say, what did he just say? I'm checking out right now, okay? I, I love our country. I care about racial reconciliation, and I love the poor. I love everyone. I want to serve the poor, as Christ did, okay? What I'm saying to you is this. Those things are not the heart of the gospel. If they're the heart of the gospel, we're in trouble, Right? That's, that's not good news. That's an implication of the gospel, but those things are not the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel. It's the heartbeat. It's the foundation. It's the core. It is the thing that is good news to us. Uh, apart from this, there is no good news. Nothing can be added, but nothing surely can be taken away. This is the good news of the gospel. That a real, authentic Jesus, very God of very God, came according to promise that he died and he was resurrected. Apart from that, we have no good news. So let's not get distracted from the actual gospel. It's the substance of the good news. It's the heart of the good news. But let me tell you, Christ continues moving. And what he begins to speak about, and there's a, there's a final part here, but he begins to speak about the purpose Okay? This is the, the purpose uh, for the good news. This is why Christ died, why he raised and was resurrected. And as you heard me reading there in verse 46, he said it, that the Christ would die, he would suffer and die, that he would raise again for repentance and forgiveness of sins. Christ died that sins might be forgiven. Let me get technical for a second here. And we don't get technical just to get technical. We get technical if it helps us to understand the text, okay? So let me get technical with a word. It is a Greek word. It is the word that is translated in this passage, forgiveness, okay? It is the Greek word, aphasin, aphasin. And it is the compound of two words, apo, which means from, and hemi, which means to set in motion, Okay? To set in motion away from. That's really what the word means. Now, if you were to look up this word in the Greek New Testament, you would find about 75% of the time it's translated not as forgiveness, but to send away. Okay, it means to send away, to remove from, to separate from, to dislocate two separate things and to, to remove them very far away. This is the word that's used to describe our sin here, and I think it's powerful. I was trying to think of an illustration, and I think this will be helpful. Let me give you this one, and, and maybe this will stick in your mind. Uh, an illustration having to do with my dog, okay? My dog, her name is Betty. Some of you have met her, some of you have not. Betty, I would make the argument, is the friendliest dog in all of Lynchburg, okay? Friendliest dog in all of Lynchburg, and that's what she has going for her. She also has a fatal flaw, and that is that she's the friendliest dog in all of Lynchburg, okay? And here's what I mean. You can't go from one side of the kitchen to the other side of the kitchen without tripping over Betty because she just wants to be against your leg, okay? You can't lay down on the couch without her face being in your face. There is no freedom, no space from Betty because she is always up in your space, okay? Because she loves to be near people. Here's another part of the fatal flaw, Okay, Betty will always find a ball, and whatever you're doing in the yard, no matter how long you're doing it, a half a day, a whole day, hours on end, the ball will constantly be in front of you, 
so that you trip over it unless you throw it. And if you move past it, she picks it up and puts it in front of you and in front of you for hours on end. It's hard for lawn mowing, okay? The neighbors, yeah, my neighbors always look at me like, why are you constantly stop? I stop the lawnmower, I pick up the ball, I move out of the way, I start it again, you let the handle go, it stops, you pick it up, you start the mower. It is insane how often this happens. Now listen, here's, here's the picture, okay? Probably about 30 times my dog, I will kick the ball all the way or throw the ball away, she'll bring it back and I will get frustrated, so what do I eventually end up doing? I pick up the ball and I throw it someplace where she will never be able to get it, Okay? If that's on the roof, in the gutter, if that's 50 yards into the wood outside of our property, okay, wherever I need to throw it so that it is so far removed from her that she cannot get access to the ball, that's what I do. This is the word that's being used to describe what God does with our sin, okay? It's thrown into the wilderness, the metaphysic wilderness where it can never be found again. It can't be dug up. It can't be accessed. There is no finding it. That's what the word means, all right? Now, if you're still curious, let me tell you some of the other ways the Bible describes it. Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I love that one. You've never been all the way to the east or the west, have you? They are perpetual. As far as that is away, one from the other, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah 38. In love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. That's kind of a cool picture, right? God doesn't see them anymore. If God had a back, they'd be behind his back. Okay? Or Micah 7, my favorite. You will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Okay? The picture is taking a boat into the middle of the Pacific Ocean a boat full of the sin, pushing it off the edge, tied to the anchor, and it goes to the bottom. It can never be found again. This is the way the Bible tries to describe what God does with our sin. This is the word that Christ uses here. That the Christ would suffer, die, and be raised again for the removal, the dislocation, the extraction, the destruction, the annihilation of our sin who by faith trust Him. This is the thrust of the word. Now let me ask you a so what question. So what? What's the big deal? Well, let me bring it back to the very beginning. We began by talking about our trouble. That's what Jesus began talking about as well. Our hearts are troubled. Let me tell you, this is the laying out of the remedy for the things that trouble you. I don't know all the particular things. If you were to, to write them down right now, what's troubling me, I don't know what you would write down, okay? Because I don't know all of you, and I don't know all of your troubles. I'm sure I could summarize some of the things, but I, I wouldn't know. But let me tell you, whether you know it or not, whether you can describe it or not, whether you've learned it or not, those troubles are intimately connected with this trouble, the capital T, Okay? That is the fall and separation from God that we have all experienced. Whether you know it or not, your troubles are rooted in that. They're all connected to that. They're all a symptom of that. They're all the byproduct of that great trouble. And the situation that Jesus describes this morning is very simple. He says to you and I, as he says to his disciples, 
I understand the trouble of your heart. I get it. I made the heart. I know why troubles and doubts arise in your heart. I know why you experience the internal turmoil that you do. And not only do I know it, but I have a remedy, a solution for the things that perplex you, for the things that keep you awake at night, the things that cause you anxiety, turbulence, okay? And he essentially says, as the scriptures foretold, the real authentic Jesus would come, and he would die, and he'd be buried, and he would raise from the grave, he would conquer sin and death, and by faith now he would make this available to you and I, that the troubles of your hearts might be remedied through the remedy of sin, that sin might be dealt with, and that children of God might be reconciled to their Father that they would no longer be separated, but they would be brought back together with the one who made them, the one who created them. This is the beautiful message of the gospel that Jesus shares this morning as he speaks to his disciples. And this is available to us, as Jesus says, through repentance. It's the proclamation he makes here this morning. That ought to be an obvious, visible turning from the world and turning in faith unto Jesus Christ. We are convinced in our hearts that Christ can save us from our trouble. He can save us from our separation from God. And if we believe with our hearts and confess with our mouths that He is Christ and that this indeed has come to pass, that He has accomplished these things, then He will surely do it. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Now let me add one last thing. You might still be wondering why. There's a lot of whys here. Why does God allow man to fall into sin in the first place? Why does he allow our hearts to continue to experience trouble? Why does he have to send his son Jesus? Why does Christ have to die? Why do things transpire in this way? Why, 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 right? Let me tell you, the end of this passage has a final answer for us. The substance of the gospel, the purpose and the forgiveness of sins, but there's a second purpose. It's a really important one, the glory of God. We see at the end of this passage, we see the, the way the Bible unfolds redemptive history and tells us all of this comes to play in the course of history is the way that the gospel of Luke unfolds itself. And as we hear Jesus here articulating the gospel, we see in the final words of Christ, in the very end of this gospel, the purpose for all that has now transpired is the glory of God and the worship of his son, Jesus Christ. You see what happens at the end of this gospel? Jesus shares these words with the disciples, and what do they do? They say, thanks, Jesus, we're good to go. We're off to our own lives. And they forget about him. That's not what happens. Verse 50, then he led them as far as Bethany, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. What a beautiful thing. He didn't have to say to them, now listen, when I go, you need to make sure you go to the temple. You gotta do it at least once a week. More will be preferable, okay? But I'm watching you. 
Go to the temple. It's not what he says. Never comes in the conversation. Why? Because they're so amazed. The text says that they marvel with joy, right? They're so amazed and marveling with joy at the beauty of the gospel and the lengths to which God has gone to save them that once they come in faith to him, they can't help but worship him. Right? And they're in the temple every day. They're like, okay, we'll get done the work and then we're going to temple. Going to get done the work tomorrow, go to temple. I'll meet you at the temple before work and after work. We're going to go worship God. They are so excited. They're brimming over the purpose of the gospel, the purpose of the fall, the purpose of all of the history of redemption, the purpose for you and I, the reason we exist, the reason we've been created is to glorify God the Father, is the purpose for which we've been created. So let me just simply offer you this this morning. If you're here with us and you don't have a church you go to, or if you're here and you're visiting with somebody and they drug you Easter Sunday morning, they drug you here to church and it's your one Sunday that you go a year, let me just tell you two things. First of all, you gotta deal with the real authentic Jesus, okay? How do you reconcile with that? But second, this is what we do every week. We gather together the people of God, hearing the preaching of God's word so that the spirit of God would move among us that we would worship him. It's what we're designed to do. If you're not doing that, you're missing something. You're missing something and you're probably wondering, what am I missing? There's a hole here. Something's lacking. You have been designed to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I would ask, I would encourage you, join us or join another church. Every Sunday, gathering together to worship the living God and his son, Christ Jesus, who has conquered the grave, who has conquered sin, and now offers us this reconciliation, this redemption that we could glorify the Father week in and week out, every day of our lives, with every word from our mouths, and every action that comes from our hearts that he would receive the glory and that his son would be lifted up. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you sent him to die because you loved us so much. We confess, Lord God, that we don't understand the price. We have no concept of what it cost to pay for our sin. For we can articulate it with our mouths. We can read it in your word. We can even begin to dwell on it in our hearts, but our minds truly cannot comprehend. The price that you have paid by coming and taking on human flesh, by bearing our sin, taking it, going to the cross, being crucified, suffering condemnation and judgment that we deserved, and then freely giving to us by grace, through faith of no work of our own, this good news that we might be reconciled. Lord, may we glorify you as your spirit works in our hearts to move us, that we would see beyond ourselves and we would recognize our great need. May we fall at the foot of the cross. May we cry out to you, O Lord, our God, 
And may we cast our burdens, our hopes, our dreams, our needs, our pains, our sufferings, our trouble. May we cast these things at the foot of the cross, trusting you, O Lord God, to save us and to make us whole and to make us new. We thank you. We praise you. We glorify you, God the Father. We glorify you, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And we honor you in the name of Jesus Christ who has saved us. In his name we pray. Amen.